So, Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the privilege of being your children. Lord, I thank you for this church. And I'm asking today that, Holy Spirit, you would literally invade this sanctuary, that you would reveal Jesus to us greater than we've ever known him before. I'm asking that your word would not only go into the heads, unto our minds, our souls, but I'm asking that your word would pierce and go all the way to the heart today and bring liberty and freedom to all. I ask this for I declare that your kingdom has come, your will shall be done in this place on earth as it is in heaven. And for this I give you the honor, the glory, and the praise. Every bit of it in Jesus' name. And everybody that agrees shouts. Amen. Come on, give him praise for what he's going to do in your life today. <laughs> Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, today um, I'm going to share with you a message that actually is in a book I wrote 20 years ago this year. It's its 20th anniversary. It's in, sold over a million copies. It's in over 50 languages. And I really wish I had this message proclaimed to me 30 years ago. It really would have saved me some heartache. And so to introduce it, I'm going to share with you something that Jesus talked about with his disciples in Matthew 24. It has to do with the time period right before his second coming. How many of you believe we are living in that time period that we're just before the second return of the Lord? Let me see your hands. Yeah, absolutely. So he's talking about our time period. And I want to open up with the 10th verse. I'm going to look at 10, 11, 12, and 13. Jesus said, and then many will be offended. Everybody say many. many. Now the Greek word there for many literally means majority. So at least 51%. Many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Now this is a progression. If you leave that up just for a second, an offended person will eventually betray, and if a betrayal, if it's not dealt with, will ultimately lead to hatred. You say, John, where do you get that? Proverbs 18, verse 19 says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. Now, in the days of Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, what did strong cities have around them? Walls. walls. What were the walls built for? Protection. They would keep out those people you believed were against you. This is exactly what a person does that has been hurt, that has been offended. They begin to build walls, but the New Testament doesn't call them walls. The New Testament calls them strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, 4, and 5 tells us that these strongholds are thought processes or reasonings that we develop deep within our soul that are contrary to the word or the will of God. Now, how many of you know that God's word is rooted in his nature. And his nature is love, right? He doesn't have love. He is love, right? So the love of God, the word of God is always seeking to give, to give, to give. However, a person that's been hurt, they've been offended, now develops thought processes and reasonings that seek to protect, protect, protect. So if push comes to shove in a relationship now, what happens is, we end up betraying. Now, the reason that doesn't make sense to many of you is our misguided understanding of betrayal. Most of us only know betrayal in the extreme sense. Benedict Arnold, Judas. But let me tell you what a definition of a betrayal is. A betrayal is when I seek my protection or benefit at the expense of one I have a relationship with. So if we're building these thought processes of protect because we've been hurt, push comes to a shove in a relationship, we're going to protect ourselves at the expense of one we have a relationship with. A betrayal 
is an ultimate abandonment of a relationship. And if it's not dealt with, it can easily lead into hatred. Now, a lot of people don't understand hatred in the church either because they assimilate, assume it has to do with having extreme emotions or anger. Can I say this? You can have no emotions and hate somebody. Because the word hate in the Greek means loveless. It means a literal vacuum that is void of love. And so if you look at Ammon, Ammon neither spoke good nor evil to his brother Absalom because, or Absalom spoke neither good nor evil to his brother Ammon because he hated him. So what Jesus is saying here is, in the last days, right before his second coming, there's going to be a massive amount of offense. A lot of people hurt. It's going to lead to a lot of betrayals. It's even going to lead into hatred. And then in verse 11, the very next verse, he said, Then, after this, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Who are the many they're going to deceive? The many that are offended. Now, you know what that tells me is that an offended heart is the breeding ground for deception. Now, there's only one problem with deception, and that's this. It's deceiving. The person who's deceived believes with all their heart they're right, when in reality they're wrong. That's scary. Now, Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, because lawlessness will abound. Now, what is lawlessness? It's simply the Greek word anomia, which simply means you're not submitted to the authority of God. So when you're developing thought processes of protect, 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 you are now no longer under the authority of God. And this lawless thinking that's going to abound from the massive offense is going to cause the love of many to grow cold. And that's when he comes in with this final verse. He says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. You know, you don't look at an unbeliever, a person who's never come into church and say, if you endure, you'll be saved. You say that to somebody that has already started the race, a true believer. Do you know what Jesus is actually saying here? The offense that's going to go run rampant is going to happen inside the church. The betrayals, the hatred in the church, the deception in the church. And he's talking about the love, the result, the end result of this, the love of many growing cold. Are you with me? You see, let me tell you something, church. The person that can hurt you the deepest is the person that is closest to you. Why is that? Our expectations are higher on them. Have you ever noticed a Christian say this? I, I've heard this several times. I've had Christians look at me and go, you know, most people in the world treat me better than Christians. Why is that? Their expectation on the world is zero. So if the world does anything for them, they've been that much of a blessing. But if our expectation is here on most Christians and here on our pastors and here on our spouses... If they only do this much, they've offended us by this much. That's why the person who can hurt you the deepest is the person that's closest to you. Now, if you want to put all offended people in two categories, you can do it. Those who have been genuinely mistreated, and the other category would be those who think they have been mistreated. Now, I don't want to deal with category two. Those people have inaccurate information or they have accurate information and have discerned inaccurately. I want to deal with or group number one, those who've been genuinely mistreated. If you've been genuinely mistreated, do you have the right to be offended? Well, let me make this clear. You have the right to do anything because God's given us a free will. But if you want to walk with God, you have no right to be offended. Yeah, but John, you don't know what they did to me. How many of you have ever heard somebody say that? You just don't know what they did to me. Come on. Do I pray for the rest of you for lying now or later? Come on. 
I mean, how many of you have ever said that? Don't raise your hand. This is what I would say to them. No, you don't know what you did to Jesus. An offended Christian who cannot forgive is a Christian who's forgotten what they've been forgiven of. Let me say that one more time. A person who cannot forgive is a person that's forgotten or never known what they were forgiven of. If you look at God, when Adam sinned against Eve, how many of you know our just reward for what our sin is that we should have burned in hell forever and ever and ever? That's our just reward. That's what we deserve. But God chose to forgive us. Are you with me? That's amazing. And Peter comes up to Jesus one day. And Peter, you know, these disciples, they were constantly wrestling with what Jesus was saying because he's talking about forgiveness. And they lived under the law. And law said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And Peter says, hey, my brother does me wrong seven times and I forgive him, right? That's enough. And Peter just thinks he's being magnanimous and thinks Jesus is going to say, dude, blessed are you. You got it, right? But Jesus looks at him and says, no, not seven times, 70 times seven. In Luke's gospel, he said in a day. Now for you to sin against me, 490 times in one day means that you'd have to do it once every three minutes provided you and I don't go to sleep in that 24 hours. Now, I don't know anybody that can sin that good. What Jesus is saying is this. Your forgiveness is to be just like your heavenly fathers, inexhaustible, because we are commanded, not suggested, to forgive each other as we have been forgiven, because the way we forgive is the way we are going to be forgiven. The whole problem comes down to this. We've categorized sins. I mean, we have the big ones, stealing, murder, witchcraft, right? And then we have what we call weaknesses. Gossip, unforgiveness, strife. Now, you know what's amazing is I can throw you, show you three times more scriptures in the New Testament of a person that will not be forgiven who refuses to forgive than a person that will not be forgiven who murders. Sure is quiet in this Methodist church. You still here? (laughs) Now, this is not just a bunch of theory to me. You know, I got saved in my college fraternity in 1979 at Purdue University. One of my fraternity brothers was a phenomenal athlete, and I played varsity tennis at Purdue, and he shared with me Campus Crusade, Four Spiritual Laws, And I remember receiving Jesus. And after I received Jesus, man, I'm telling you, the love of God came in my heart. And did you notice, and when you became a believer, that it was easier to forgive people once you became a Christian. I mean, it was so easy to forgive people. Until, until, a man who I looked up to so highly. This man was closer to me than a father. In fact, and and this man did some things to me over a course of a year that were devastating. In fact, they were so multiplied, what he did to me, and so obvious that like every other day I had people coming to me after a year of this, they said, are you okay? I said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, everything's cool. I'd have people come to me and say, are are, are you going to go to him? No, 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 I'm going on with the call of God in my life. Now, let let me be really honest, and I hope you hear what I'm about to say, because this is what kept me from getting free for a long time. I was too proud to admit I was offended. See, I saw being offended as a sign of weakness. And I wasn't going to say I was weak. So I kept saying to everybody, I'm fine, I'm fine. Now what happened was this. The love of God in my heart, the fire of God, started getting colder and colder and colder. It was like the frog in the kettle, but the reverse. Are you with me? I mean, ministry started becoming more of an occupation for me, not a passion. I remember, you know, Lisa would look at me in this time period and she'd go, 
what's wrong? I go, nothing, nothing. I'm fine. I'm just thinking a lot lately. Everything's good. And I, this went on for months and months. And you know what was really scary? Is people were still getting saved when I was preaching. People were still getting healed when I was praying for them. And I mean, it got to the point where I started getting so numb that one day, after months and months of this, I walked out to my back patio one day. And I just looked up. I said, God, Father, am I offended? And I heard this on the inside of me. Yes! <laughs> this is the loudest I have ever heard. I thought it was audible, the voice of God to this day. And I remember I just dropped my hands and I said, I need help. I've fasted, I've prayed, I've confessed, I've forgiven by faith, I've done everything your Bible says. I can't get out of this one. I need help. Well, I was at the end, shortly after this, I was at the end of a four-day fast, and I went to a, a funeral. And this particular man that had deeply hurt me was doing the funeral. And I remember about two-thirds of the way through the funeral, the wells opened up, and I started weeping. It was the first time I'd cried in like six months. And I remember just saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, I release you. And I was saying it under my breath. And I remember, when that funeral was over, I got out of there so quick because I didn't want people to see my red eyes from crying. And I came home, I said to my wife, I said, it happened. I just broke down, cried, I forgave him, it's over. Two weeks later, I see the guy again. And I thought, how can he be so blessed? He did this to me, and he did that to me, and he did this to me, and he did this to that person, and he did that to that person. Well, I remember leaving the place... And I thought about it all the way home. Then I ate lunch talking about it with my wife. Then I thought about it all afternoon. I talked about it with my wife at dinner. I thought about it that night. I went to bed thinking about it. I got up the next morning thinking about how bad he treated me. I took a shower thinking about how bad he treated me. And then I got scared. I thought, I forgave the guy. I cried two weeks ago. Why am I still so tormented by what he did to me? You see, that's what Jesus said. People that don't forgive are tormented. Okay? I was tormented. And so there was a principle I didn't understand that Paul makes so very clear in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. Look what Paul said. He said, and herein do I exercise. Everybody shout, exercise. exercise. Say it again. Exercise. Myself. Now notice, I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and men. Everybody say exercise again. Exercise. Pastor Joe, can you help me? Come on up. This is my friend Joe. All right. Now everybody loves Joe here. I can walk up to Joe and do this. Did you like that? No. Oh, I'm so glad you're honest because some people aren't honest with me. I pushed him hard, but he's okay. But now I could take this and I could do this. And if I did, what would I do? I'd wound him. And how many of you know wounds don't heal overnight? So now let me tell you something. There's some offenses that hit us, we don't like it. But when it's over, it's like water off the duck, duck's back. There's other offenses that hit us that wound us. And if we don't treat wounds correctly, they never heal. Thanks, buddy. All right. Several years ago, I was in Hawaii doing a conference, Suffering for Jesus. <laughs> and... Uh, I get to suffer for Jesus again next week, too. But anyway, uh, but anyway, I'm in this conference, and, and the second to last day of the conference, I'm playing tourist, and I go to climb a wall. And I remember I put my foot up on this, and it's a rock wall. It's uneven. And I put my foot up on the rock wall, 
And when I put all my weight on my foot, I hear this in my knee. And I went, ah, right? And my wife and the pastor are laughing at me in the car. When I get down from the wall, they go, he can't walk. So they, they carry me back to the car for the next six weeks. I'm in braces, I'm in crutches, and I'm being worked on by physical therapists. Well, the next day in Hawaii, this physical therapist, he's a big guy, bald-headed, huge, owns the gym, and he's not very saved and doesn't act very saved, okay? And he's working on my knee, really making it hurt. And he's so gruff. And he goes, hey, you want to know why you injured your knee? You know, everybody in here, he's pointing to all the people working out, everybody in here, they wouldn't have injured their knee on that wall, but you did. I got mad. I said, all right, wise guy, why did I injure my knee and they didn't? He said, because you're out of shape. You don't exercise. And he was right. (laughs) I started thinking about it. There are some people, they don't exercise their inner man. They're not praying. They're not reading the word. The only meal they get is once a week from Pastor Randy. And so they're easily wounded. See, the reason I picked Joe is because Joe's tough. He works out. If I would have hit some of you as hard as I hit him, you would have been the doctor this afternoon. But then there's other people, like my next-door neighbor, WWF wrestler. He's 240 pounds, 4% body fat, perfect V chest, 8-pack, right? His muscles are his arms are as big as my legs. One day he looks at me and goes, John, would you please come and watch my videos? I said, okay, I'll watch your videos. I thought this stuff was all fake. I couldn't believe it. They're breaking chairs over his back. Breaking guitars over his head. I watch a 400-pound sumo wrestler jump off the ropes on top of him, and he jumps up like nothing happened. I mean, every one of you would be in traction for eight weeks. Well, you know, the Bible says in Psalm 119, great peace of those who love your word and nothing can offend them. In the spirit, they literally become like my WWF wrestler friend. So I got on a plane in Hawaii, and I fly to Indonesia. Indonesia, I'm doing another conference, and another therapist is working on my knee. And while he's working on my knee, he was a little nicer. He said, Mr. Bevere, you want to know how to get your knee healed? I said, man, will you tell me? He said, exercise. Every day, exercise. And I started thinking, when these ball players blow out their knees, what do they do? Physical therapy that gets their knee back to where it was before it was injured, right? So that's what the Lord said to me. He said, that's what you need to do. You need to exercise. I said, how do I exercise? Right? Remember Paul said, I exercise myself to have a conscience without offense? I said, how do I exercise? And the Lord said, read Matthew 5.44. So I go to Matthew 5.44 and I get down to the 44th verse and look what Jesus says. But I tell you, pray for anyone who mistreats you. Now in another version, he says, pray for those that abuse you. Now what's interesting is Jesus never once says in the Gospels, pray for your mother. He doesn't say pray for your dad. He doesn't say pray for your kids. Now, does that mean we're not supposed to pray for our mom, dad, kids? No, a million times no. But what is interesting to me is the specific person that Jesus tells us that we have to pray for is the people who mistreat us. So the Lord said, that's how you exercise. You pray for him. So I got up from the table. That's the way I prayed. God, bless him in Jesus' name. (laughs) The next day. Oh, by the way. uh, Yeah, bless that guy. Yeah. (laughs) Next day. If you can bless him. That's the way I prayed for the guy for the next five weeks. Now, that's like lifting a penny. When I got no better but rather grew worse, I'm on another three-day fast and the Holy Spirit speaks to me. I have no idea what he's telling me. He says, read Psalm 35. So I go over to Psalm 35. First 10 verses make no sense. 
Don't you hate them when that happens? And then I get to verse 11 and it starts making sense. Because look what David says in verse 11. Evil people pay me back evil for my good. I said, hey, that's me. I did the guy good. He paid me back evil. So I'm thinking the next verse, David's going to say like bust their teeth out. You know, like he does in the Psalms. So the next verse, David says, but as for me, look at this. When they were sick, these are the people who did him evil. I dressed in mourning. I deprived myself of food. I prayed with my head bowed low as I would pray for my friend or brother. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, you pray for that man, what you want me to do in your life or basically your family. That changed everything. I got up from the table and I started pacing. I started praying everything for him that I wanted. I said, Father, I pray that this man would know you the best a man can know you. I pray that he would please you the best a man can please you. I pray that his motives and intentions would be as pure as Jesus's. I pray, Lord God, that you would literally shelter him and protect him. I pray that you would cover him with your presence and surround him with wise men and women. I pray that you'd bring finances from unexpected quarters to do what you've called him to do. And I start praying like that. Now, can I tell you, it took everything in me to pray that for him. Because my soul didn't want that. You know how some people say, well, pray what feels good? That's baloney. You pray the truth. You don't pray what feels good. Do you think that guy, when that football player, when he's blown out his knee and you put 20 pounds on the leg curling machine, you think it's going to feel good? He's going to scream with pain. And so I, I start praying like that every day. On purpose, for five minutes at least, I'd pray for him. Everything I wanted, I prayed for him. Well, after a couple of weeks, it started getting a little bit stronger. What's happening? I'm starting to get healed. A few more weeks, it's getting a little stronger. A few more weeks, I'm out one day in a place of prayer. I'm deep in prayer. And I remember, without even really consciously thinking about it, I screamed his name out and I said this. I said, so and so, I love you. And when I said, I love you, it was like junk came out of my gut. I thought, I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm healed. So I went home. I said, my wife, I said, this is so amazing. I'm healed. So two weeks later, I see him again. Another little eh on the inside. I thought, now What? Now, my wife, who is so prophetic, believe me, between my wife and the Holy Spirit, I can't get away with anything, and I like that. So my wife, just out of the blue, sits me down on the couch, and she puts her arm around me, and she goes, honey, you need to go to him. I said, oh! I jumped up off the couch. I said, no, 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 no. I've prayed. I've exercised. I don't need to go to him. She said, okay. So I went out and prayed. I said, Lord, do I need to go to him? The Lord said, yes. Now, do you know when Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him? Can I show you the way most people interpret that? You want to jump back up here with me, Joe? This is the way most people interpret this scripture. Watch this. Joe, I just want you to know you did this, and you did this, and you did this, but I forgive you. Okay, what are they doing? They're using that scripture as a license to go tell you how bad you treated me. Like, if somebody looks at you and says, now, brother, I love you, but, when they say but, put up the umbrella, because here comes the vomit, okay? So... That's not what Jesus had in mind when he said, go to your brother. What he has in mind is the purpose of reconciliation. Now, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, and most Christians miss it. They lump the two together. If you really want to know the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, look at the cross. When did Jesus forgive you and I? When he hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He wasn't just speaking to the soldiers in the Sanhedrin. He was speaking to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, because our sins put him there. You with me? You know what a lot of people say to me? I'll forgive them when they apologize. What if Jesus would have waited for you to apologize before he forgave you? You would have been in deep hell and I would have been in deep hell. But he forgave us before we ever said, I'm sorry. 
You still with me? You're going to be in an Anglican church now. I'm just having fun. I'm trying to let you breathe for a second. But when were we reconciled back to God? When we repented and we said, I'm sorry. You were right. I was wrong. Forgive me. What led us to repentance? The goodness of God. Didn't he cause the sun to shine on you before you got saved? So you know what Jesus is saying? Go to your brother and create an atmosphere of goodness that's going to want to make him say, I'm sorry. When you go, you did this and this and this and this, but I forgive you. You know what he wants to say? Excuse me, right? Or argue with you, right? So this is what the Lord led me to do through my wife. I bought this guy a gift, a really nice gift, a gift I'd like to have. You understand? That's a real gift. And I gave this to him, right? He opens it up, and I'll never forget. (laughs) He opens his mouth, and his eyes are just like this, right? There you go, just like that. (laughs) He's speechless. So this is the way I opened it up. I said, listen, <laughs> I said, I've been in prayer. I've been in prayer. And the Lord's really dealt with my heart. I've been very critical and judgmental of you. And he goes, he goes no, you haven't. I said, oh, yeah, I have. And he said, really? I said, yeah. Well, you know what it did? It opened him up. And he shared his frustration. And after we talked for an hour, we came together like this. And we have been like this ever since. Thanks, Joe. You're amazing. <clears throat> Three days later, I looked at my wife and I said, you know what? When I first met him, he could do no wrong in my eyes. And I loved him. I said, that's immature love. I said, then I saw his faults and his faults were directed at me. I didn't love him anymore. That's immature love. I said, now, Lisa, I still see his faults. But I love him with the intensity of when I first met him. I said, Lisa, that's got to be the love of God. Because the love of God covers the multitude of sins. Jesus made a statement in Luke 17, verse 1. He said it is impossible. Look at the scripture. It is impossible that no offenses should come. Do you know what he's literally saying there? If you breathe air, you will have the opportunity to be offended. Okay? But what you do with that offense will determine your future. Either you will become bitter or you will become stronger. But you'll never be the same. Now, the Greek word for offense that he uses in Luke 17 verse 1 is actually an ancient Greek word. Scandalon. It was used originally to describe the bait stick of a trap that hunters would use to catch small animals and birds. The hunter would place the bait on the scandalon, the animal would take it, and the trap would close and either capture it or kill it. Thereby, an offense is the bait of Satan to pull you, the believer, into his captivity. Paul confirms this by saying to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that those who are in opposition with each other, those who are offended with one another, are taken captive of Satan to do Satan's will. Scary thing is you can still be in the ministry, still be a member of a church, but you're taken captive. A man I really respect had a vision, a very vivid vision of the armies of hell that would march against the church in the final days before the second coming. He said, in the vision, as the demon armies got closer, he noticed they were not riding, the demons were not riding on the backs of horses. They were riding on the backs of Christians who had been offended. They believed, and he said, in the vision, they believed they were serving God, but in actuality, they were captive of Satan. Let me end it with this. 
I was getting ready to speak in a conference one night. Before I got up to speak, the conference was jam-packed. A man gets up on the platform, 36 years old. He was gruff. He had a beard. looked like a construction worker. Didn't look like the crying type, but he was crying. The man looked at us and said, I've been in church almost all my life. I was raised in the church. And he said, but all my life I've sensed a wall between me and God. I would watch people get touched by the presence of God and it'd be like a wall. He said, a couple weeks ago, somebody handed me the book, The Bait of Satan. That's the book I've been preaching out of. He said, I read the whole book in two days. And he said, when I finished the book, I realized I held unforgiveness against my mother because my mother gave me away when I was six weeks old. He said, so I contacted my birth mother and talked to her for the second time in 36 years. He said, Mom, I've held unforgiveness against you for 36 years for giving me away. She began weeping on the phone. She said, I've hated myself for 36 years for giving you up. He forgave her. She forgave herself. Now the story gets really good. Now the man's got tears pouring off his beard onto his shirt. He said, now the wall that's been there for all these years between me and God is completely gone. He said, I've been crying like this in my prayer times in the morning when I get in services like this. Do you have the right to be offended? You have the right to do anything because God gave you free will. But if you want the presence of God, if you want to walk with Him, you do not have the right to be offended. Did you get something out of this today? I want every, every head bowed, every eye closed. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this building. I want to say this. Please do not allow pride to keep you from getting free. For so many years, or for so many months, I should say, I didn't get free because I couldn't admit I was offended. If you're in here today, you may have walked in here and the Word of God uncovered that offense that you've been harboring. Some of you have been harboring that offense for a couple weeks, some a couple months, some a couple years. One guy looked at me after first service and said, 55 years in tears. You know, here's the thing. What was done to you was probably really wrong. But in God's eyes, two, no, two wrongs have never made a right. Your sin of offense is not justified by how badly you were treated. You have to take responsibility for your sin of offense. If you're sitting here this morning, you'd say, John, I've been harboring an offense. And I realize I'm the one that's wrong to not forgive. I want you to raise your hand if you say, I'm willing to forgive this morning. I want you to lift them up high all over this place right now. Just lift them up in our campuses. Lift them up. It must be 50% of the hands are up in the building right now. I'm going to just give you just another second. Please don't miss out on this. Just lift your hand up high. That's you. More hands are going up. We're up to 60%, maybe 70. <laughs> all right, put your hands back down. I can't pray for all of you yet because some of you are not a child of God yet. And you can't walk in this forgiveness unless you're a child of God. Let me make it really simple. Let me make it really clear. The Bible says every one of us were born as slaves. Yeah, you were born a slave. So was I. Slave of what? Slave of sin. That's why we needed a Savior. God sent the perfect remedy, Jesus Christ, His only Son. Born of a woman, making Him 100% man, but fathered by the Holy Spirit, making Him 100% God. He's the only innocent human being that has ever walked this earth. And He went to the cross and He took your judgment and my judgment. He suffered, he died, he, they buried him. And now God has made a decree that any human being that receives Jesus as their Lord, he then becomes their Savior. A miracle's done. And that person goes instantly to becoming a child of God. 
Let me make this really clear to you. You can come to church. You can believe Jesus is the Son of God. You can believe He died on the cross and still not be a child of God. See, the Bible says you have to give Him the Lordship of your life. The way I like to see it is like this. When a woman walks down an aisle of a church with a white dress on, do you know what that woman is saying to all the, to all the male race? She's saying goodbye to the male race. She's saying she's giving her heart to that one man that's waiting for her at the altar, and that's the one and only man she'll give her heart to. When you give your life to Jesus, it's like what that woman does with that man. You give everything. You give your entire life to Him. You can't just believe He's Savior. You can't just believe He's Jesus Christ and be saved. You've got to give Him your entire heart. If you're in here this morning, you'd say, John, I've never given Him my life before and I want to do it right now, then I want you to raise your hand up high. I want to pray for you. Just lift your hands up. You say, I want to give my life to Jesus. Oh, hands going up all over. Put them up high. Don't be ashamed. He died for you. There must be 40, 50 hands up. Put them up really high. Okay, put your hands back down. Now, if you raised your hand on either one of those, I want you to pray with me right now. But I also want every person in this building to pray out loud with us too. I want us to pray with these 40 or 50 people to receive Jesus and these 70% that raise their hands to forgive. Say this with me. God in heaven, forgive me for living independent of you. Today, I'm changing that. I give my spirit, soul, and body everything I am, everything I have to Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are now my Lord. And forever I will serve you as my king. Thank you for making me a part of the family of God. Today, I choose to forgive. I realize my sin of unforgiveness is not justified by how badly I was treated. I ask you to forgive me for harboring sin, harboring unforgiveness, harboring offense. Today... I choose to forgive the way you have forgiven me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow, what a release I sense in here. Amen? Amen. amen.